Hey listeners, or edge hogs as some, uh, well, particularly on YouTube, have been calling themselves. Uh, Andrew here. Today we're doing things a bit differently and sharing with you a preview from another podcast I enjoy. That's Revisionist History. You might be familiar with Revisionist History. It's best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell's podcast that re-examines something from the past and asks whether we got it right the first time. I'm fascinatingly intrigued by the concept. I love this podcast. It's one I listen to. I don't usually do these sort of dropping other episodes into my feed, but it's Malcolm Gladwell. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a philosopher and writer. He's one of my favorites. I've read many of his books. I'm a huge fan. And when I learned Malcolm wanted to preview on On the Edge with Andrew Gold, I was pretty excited. Now, like On the Edge with Andrew Gold, revisionist history is all about asking big questions and learning more about fascinating topics. This season, Malcolm's obsessed with experiments, natural experiments, scientific experiments, thought experiments. And in this preview, it's an episode where Malcolm heads to the University of Pennsylvania to run an experiment on a category of privilege that's often ignored and asks whether his own book, Outliers, might be partly to blame. Lessons are learned and hijinks ensue. Okay, so here's the episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You can hear more from Revisionist History wherever you get your podcasts. In the middle of our preparations for season seven of this, your favorite podcast, the Revisionist History team got on a train to Philadelphia, four of us, carrying props, recording equipment, and extra microphones. Our destination, the gothic ivy-covered cathedral of higher learning that is the University of Pennsylvania. And why did we go? Because we had cooked up a little experiment, and we were curious to see how it would fly. Thank you. Welcome to we commandeered one of the main lecture halls at the Wharton School, invited 75 or so students, all seniors, smart, focused, disciplined, future masters of the universe, and asked them to answer 10 simple questions, such as, how many years of your K-12 education were a public school and how many were a private school? At the time of your graduation from high school, how many continents had you visited? At any point during your middle school and high school years, did your parents provide you with a private tutor? How are you doing today, Mr. Gawa? Pretty good. Enjoying myself. I looked out at rows and rows of eager students, hunched over their desks in anticipation, took a deep breath, and began. So my name is Malcolm Gladwell. I am uh, the host of the podcast Revisionist History. The theme of this season of Revisionist History is experiments. And one of the experiments of this season uh, involves all of you. So you guys are guinea pigs? Yes, guinea pigs. Because in the manner of all guinea pigs, they were entirely in the dark about what we had in store for them. And as you probably guessed from some of the questions that you were given. What I'm trying to do is I'm conducting uh, an experimental investigation into the nature of the privilege of the people in this room. The students quickly finished the questionnaires and put their names and birth dates at the top. 
My producers, Eloise and Harrison, are sitting at a big table at the front of the room in full view of all the guinea pigs. They go through the completed questionnaires, one by one, and use the answers to generate a number, a score, which they write on a giant white sticker with a big fat sharpie. And now the real experiment begins. I'm going to assign every one of you a number. If they can figure out what their number means, they will understand something essential about how broken the system was that propelled them to the Ivy League and how to fix it. Just peel off the back and I'd like you to affix the sticker to your chest so we can all see each other's numbers. You're gonna look around the room, see everyone else's numbers, see your number, and hopefully that will aid you in your investigation of what exactly the nature of this experiment is. I'll just read... Um, the students sat there with their numbers stuck to their chests, looking around in befuddlement, trying to make sense of everyone's score. I tried to help them figure it out, gave them hints, nudges. Think about this. I gave you a series of questions. Some of those questions involved a yes or no answer. So you saw two people, Eloise and Harrison, who quite quickly, in the space of about five minutes, 10 minutes, went through 75 or so responses and were able to very quickly and easily assign you a number. So think about this logically. It wasn't a complex algorithm, right? There was no computer used. Eloise, how long would you say you were spending in Harrison? How long would you spending on each questionnaire? Ten seconds. Uh, five, seconds. five, six seconds. Okay, that's a clue, guys. Let's go, come on. Hi, my name is Abe. They might have just looked at zip code because that's a pretty good predictor of privilege just in and of itself. Abe has derived his hypothesis from question six. What is the zip code your family lived in during your high school years? Perhaps, he speculates, the number on his chest was some kind of complex, mysterious derivative of his zip code. I didn't see if you had a computer, but if you did... There was no... Ellis, was there a computer? No, I did have to use a calculator one or two times. Calculator. Abraham, with all due respect, are you suggesting that Eloise and Harrison had memorized every zip code? It's plausible. <laughs> They're very smart. Yeah. Not that smart. I'm Zach. I think it really has to do strictly with the private versus public education system in the U.S. Nope, that's not what we were looking for. Hi, my name is Joseph. A question that I thought was very interesting on there was about if you have any siblings, and if so, how many? Nope, not that either. Hi, I'm Kaylee. One that I don't think I've ever been asked in relation to this was if I drank when I was in high school, what age that I get drunk at. Kaylee's referring to question number nine. In high school, did you drink alcohol? And if yes, when did you first get drunk? Could you come up with any reason why I would have asked that question, or do you think that's just one of the ones that I'm just blowing smoke on? I have my own hypothesis, but I can't. Oh, come on. <laughs> what if I'm wrong? That's, this is all about being wrong. Oh, this is all about being wrong. Once upon a time in 2008, I wrote a book called Outliers, the first chapter of which was devoted to a phenomenon discovered in the 1980s by the Canadian psychologist Roger Barnsley. Here's some of what I wrote. 
the explanation for who gets to the top of the hockey world is a lot more interesting and complicated than it looks. Good Lord. I do not sound like I'm enjoying reading my own book. Listening to this part of the Outliers audiobook now, I'll admit I have some regrets about that chapter. We'll get to that, I promise. Anyway, it occurred to me, as I planned our trip to Philly, that I should talk to Barnsley again and go over his discovery one more time, make sure I understood everything. So I called him up and asked him to retell the story of how, in the early 1980s, he and his wife Paula stumbled upon what has come to be known as the relative age effect. We were living in uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, and uh, we went to a junior A hockey team. It was the Lethbridge Broncos at that time. Barnsley's wife Paula started reading the game program, which had the rosters of both teams listed in it. Paula said over to me, Roger, when, when do you think all these hockey players were born? And I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, that's, that's kind of a silly question. Uh, so I, I did a quick calculation. I said, you know, Paula, they're average age 18. Uh, it's about 1982, so they're probably all born in around 1964. And she said, no, 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 I'm not talking about the year. I'm talking about the month. And I said, what are you talking about? And she opened up the page of the program where they had listed the roster of the team. And it just jumped out at us, just jumped out that the majority of these players were January, February, and March, and then you, you seem to get the odd April and May and very few in the fall. And I said, my goodness, that's just remarkable. He went home and expanded his search further. Everywhere he looked in competitive hockey, same thing. For some reason, most players were born in the first part of the year. And that's when that famous 40-30-20-10 by the quarters of the year showed up. The famous 40-30-20-10 phenomenon that he's talking about is what, in Outliers, I referred to as the Iron Law of Canadian Hockey. Quote, In any elite group of hockey players, the very best of the best, 40% of the players will have been born between January and March, 30% between April and June, 20% between July and September, and 10% between October and December. End quote. Now, why is this? It's because Canada is obsessed with hockey, and coaches start picking players for all-star traveling squads at the age of 9 or 10. Since the eligibility cutoff for Canadian hockey is January 1st, that means the coaches are choosing among 9-year-olds who are as much as 12 months apart. And 12 months age difference at the age of 9 is a lot. The January kids are bigger and stronger and more coordinated than the December kids, which means that the January kid is more likely to be chosen by the coaches for the traveling squad, which means, in turn, that they will practice two or three times as often, play more games, have better coaches, better competition than the kids left behind. And what began as a completely arbitrary advantage based on a quirk of birthdays turns over time into a real advantage. The same phenomenon holds true in other sports, soccer, swimming, you name it. You can find the relative age effect everywhere. And of course, it also applies to the classroom. Teachers aren't any better than coaches at disentangling ability from maturity. 
So relatively older kids in elementary and middle school end up getting more encouragement. They tend to get better grades. And they're more likely to be chosen for things like gifted and talented programs. Meanwhile, relatively younger kids are more likely to be diagnosed with learning disorders or flagged for problem behavior. I cannot tell you how many parents have come up to me over the years and said, because I read your book, Outliers, I held my kid back from starting school, and it was the best decision I ever made. Of course it was. But parents holding their kids back doesn't solve the problem. It just creates a relative age effect arms race. There's a fancy private school near me where so many parents of younger children have held their kids back that now the parents of the formerly eldest children have responded by holding their kids back. Whereupon, the first set of parents are increasingly holding their kids back a second time, meaning that there is at least a theoretical possibility that in the most competitive corners of American private education, some kids may never graduate from high school. Maybe I should have seen all that coming when I wrote Outliers. I should have made it clear that I was not trying to teach neurotic upper-middle-class helicopter parents how to game the system. I just wanted schools and sports leagues to stop behaving like idiots. So, Barnsley's paper on relative age effect came out in 1985. Outliers, which was, I think, the first time Barnsley's work got wide publicity, was published in 2008. The world has been alerted for decades to the fact that all kinds of supposedly meritocratic systems have been hijacked. Has anything changed? You're in front of your computer. I am. Are you? I put the question to Roger Barnsley, the OG of relative age effect research. What have we learned? Can you Google the roster of the Canadian junior hockey team, national hockey team for 2021-22, the current roster? I'll do it right now. And I want you to, to go down the list of the forwards, just use the forwards for the sake of simplicity, and I want you to just read the 21 uh, months of birth of the forwards on the current Canadian junior national hockey team. Their birth dates are just their names. I just want their birth months. Okay, let's see. And then Barnsley repeated what his wife Paula did decades ago at the Lethbridge Broncos hockey game. He listed the birth months by number of the members of the national junior hockey team. Listen for birth months of seven or higher. 2, 10, 1, 1, 1, 2, 11, 8, 4, 2, 10, 5, 4, 5, 2, 6, 1, 3, 1, 1, 5, 3, 2, 4, 7, 1. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. They've learned nothing. It's the same phenomenon you saw You saw this 40 years ago. <laughs> The iron law of Canadian hockey is still an iron law. Isn't that funny? Roger, it's not funny is, at all. It's depressing. Very depressing. Very it's, depressing. Here we are, both Canadians. We're, <laughs> we, are, we are citizens of a country that cares more about hockey excellence yep. than anything else. Let's be clear. Anything else. <laughs> and we are leaving an astonishing amount of talent on the table. Exactly. And refusing to learn. One of Canada's own prominent <laughs> academics 40 years ago said to the yeah, hockey establishment, yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, that's right. 
and they didn't they haven't done anything Canadian hockey hasn't done anything but maybe revisionist history can